My name is Marjorie, and I'm from Oregon. My concern is if they're able to render an opinion without having a reason why and sharing that with the public, then how do we know that they're applying the law and not functioning simply from their opinion of morality? So I do think that having a shadow docket and not having to supply an opinion does decrease my faith in the Supreme Court. The shadow docket is the Supreme Court's emergency decisions. They're usually procedural and come with little explanation. But there's growing alarm that it's being used more often to make major rulings in private with wide-reaching consequences. But others say it's a means to keep lower court judges in line, especially when it comes to national injunctions. A national injunction is when a single judge blocks a government policy from being enforced nationwide. We recently saw this in action. A federal judge in Florida upended national public health policy when she struck down the CDC's federal mask mandate for airplanes and other transportation. After the break, we'll discuss how one judge can have such a large impact. We'll also get into what the overall lack of transparency and Americans' waning trust in the court means for our democracy. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. This conversation is part of our Remaking America project. Over the next two years, we'll be exploring Americans' trust in our democracy and the institutions critical to its survival. And remember to join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. Let's jump into our conversation on shadow dockets in the Supreme Court. Joining us from Philadelphia is Jeffrey Rosen. He's a professor at the George Washington University Law School. He's also president of the National Constitution Center. Jeffrey, welcome back. Great to be back. And with us from Chicago is Carolyn Shapiro. She's a professor at Illinois Institute of Technology's Chicago Kent's College of Law, and she's also the co-director of their Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. Carolyn, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jeffrey, why was there a national injunction in the transportation mask mandate case? There was a national injunction because the lower court judge, a district court in Florida, said there's no practical way of distinguishing the people who sued in the case from all the millions of other travelers who don't want to wear masks. And because she said that the mask mandate affected everyone and all of their rights were being violated, then a nationwide injunction had to issue. It was very interesting because she acknowledged that nationwide injunction had been criticized most recently by Justices Thomas and Gorsuch in the Trump travel ban cases. And she quoted from those objections where Justice Thomas said he was skeptical about the power of courts to issue what he called universal injunctions because they didn't emerge until a century and a half after the founding. And Justice Thomas said they appear to be inconsistent with longstanding limits on equitable relief. And Justice Gorsuch, uh, she quoted, issued 
similar concerns in the Department of Homeland Security case in 2020. But at the same time, she said, nevertheless, there's an exception in this case, because in practice, there's just no way of limiting my relief. And therefore, I'm going to issue a nationwide injunction. And just briefly remind us where this goes from here. Well, it's being appealed to the 11th Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. And then, of course, there's likely to be an appeal to the Supreme Court. And that'll lead to our later conversation about whether the Supreme Court is more likely to swoop in and uh, decide the case on its shadow docket. And some say it's because of the increasing use of nationwide injunctions that the court has been more likely to uh, intervene. I'll, I'll just briefly note some statistics up at the top here. In 2020, the Justice Department said there were 12 nationwide injunctions in eight years under George W. Bush, 19 in eight years under Barack Obama, and at least 55 under President Trump. So there's no question that the number of these nationwide injunctions has increased. And now the question is, are... Uh, you know, is the Supreme Court going to do anything about it? Jeffrey, you cited the increase of of the use of injunctions over the past several administrations. Do we know why this is being used more? It is a very good question. And um, some theories say that lower courts feel increasingly empowered to check expansive uses of unilateral executive authority as presidents are issuing more executive orders. And there's no question that those numbers have dramatically increased as well between Republican and Democratic administrations. Lower courts may want to use their traditional equitable powers to counter this expanding executive power. But there's also a dispute about what the role of lower courts is. Do they exist primarily to resolve disputes between parties or to declare the meaning of the law for everyone? Traditionally, it had been progressives who were more in favor of expansive judicial authority to issue injunctions for desegregation, for example, during the civil rights movement. And conservatives, as we see from Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, who are questioning the value of these universal injunctions. But now the shoe is on the other foot. All all of a sudden, we have a judge appointed by President Trump issuing this injunction. Um, And on the Supreme Court, we're seeing Justice Kagan, in particular, claiming that the justices are being inconsistent in their approach to nationwide injunctions, that they're basically swooping in using the shadow docket to stop the ones they don't like and approve the ones they do like. And she's really kind of accusing her colleagues of acting in a political way. So um, broadly, all we can say descriptively is that the use of nationwide injunctions and executive orders and the shadow docket has increased dramatically. Those three things may be interconnected in in the ways we were talking about, um, but they don't seem to be being applied in a very principled way by either side. Well, I'd love to hear from both of you on this question. When do you think a national injunction is appropriate? Carolyn, I'll come to you first. Well, there are a couple of different ways of answering that. And and one difference between uh, the, the past and many of these recent cases that we've seen is that the in many of these recent cases, the challenges that are brought and the injunctions that are issued are issued on a, on a, what's called a preliminary basis. It's a preliminary injunction. And which means it's not necessarily the, the trial court's final decision. The trial court is saying, well, for the moment, I think it's likely that the plaintiff will be able to show that the, whatever the government action is, is, 
is is illegal and the balance of interest is such that the plaintiff shouldn't have to put up with that in the meantime. Um, and these are the cases in which I think the shadow docket has been particularly problematic because you don't, by definition, we don't have a full record. By definition, everything is preliminary and it's although it's not normally possible to appeal uh, before final judgment, preliminary injunctions are special and it is possible to appeal. And many of the cases we've seen go to the Supreme Court on the shadow docket have been appeals from preliminary injunctions and situations where the Supreme Court has intervened without this full final record, without this full final judgment, and but issued a ruling that essentially decides the case permanently. Well, in a shadow docket decision earlier this month, the court's conservative majority temporarily revived a Trump-era rule that restricted states' ability to block projects that could pollute rivers and streams. Chief Justice John Roberts joined the liberals in their dissent, including a criticism by Justice Elena Kagan. She wrote that the decision, quote, renders the court's emergency docket not for emergencies at all. The docket becomes only another place for merits determinations, except made without full briefing and argument. We invited each of the nine sitting Supreme Court justices to join this conversation. They did not get back to us. But I do want to add one more voice to the conversation. University of Texas School Law Professor Steve Vladek. He's currently writing a book about the shuttle docket set to come out next year. Steve, welcome to 1A. Thanks for having me. So let's just take a step back before we get into the details of, of some of the cases we're going to discuss. How exactly is the shadow docket different from the court's normal process? Well, so, I mean, it's part of the court's normal process. I mean, the, the court actually does most of its work on the shadow docket through unsigned orders that we tend not to care about. So, you know, giving the parties more time to file a brief, um, granting or denying certiorari, you know, those are all orders that by tradition are unsigned and unexplained. Um, and the vast majority of them are orders that just don't get anyone's attention because they tend not to have substantive effects. They tend not to sort of immediately change the rights of the parties vis-a-vis each other. Um, and so what we're really seeing in the last couple of years that's changed is not the existence of the shadow docket, but how the court is using it, that we're seeing more and more of these, you know, emergency applications where while a case is proceeding below, while an appeal is going, you know, the party that lost is asking the justices to either put back into place a policy that was blocked by a lower court or to block um, a policy that the lower courts refuse to do so. And, you know, that's where I think we've seen the biggest shift in the last five years. We're seeing far more of these decisions, um, on average about 20 every year as opposed to five or six during the ten first 10 years of John Roberts' tenure. Um, we're seeing these decisions having broader effects, whether it's the OSHA vaccinator test rule or the SB8 abortion ban in Texas. Um, and we're seeing the justices for the first time say that these decisions are precedential, meaning that lower courts court judges are bound to figure out exactly what the justices were thinking, even when they don't provide any rationale. And I think it's the combination of those three that's really why the shadow doc is receiving so much more attention. And, you know, not just from scholars like us, but from the liberal justices, especially so much more criticism. We got this tweet from Jay who asks, are shadow docket rules precedential or are they just fixing a status to remain in effect while cases wind through the courts? Steve? Yeah. So, I mean, traditionally, they're not supposed to be precedential. I mean, the court has said over and over again that they're not precedents. Um, but we have a bunch of examples, especially from, you know, the spring of 2021, where there were a series of shadow docket rulings involving COVID gathering restrictions 
in California, where the Supreme Court kept telling the lower courts that one of its earlier unsigned, unexplained orders um, in a case called South Bay Pentecostal Church um, actually was precedent that they had to follow. So the justices are treating them as precedential, at least in some cases. To the broader question, though, about, you know, isn't this just fixing the status quo for the rest of the appeal? That's historically how these were supposed to operate. In practice, though, these are typically now the last word because when the court is signaling its views on the merits and when it's effectively telling lower courts and the relevant policymakers that those signals are predictive, you know, it's not in those policymakers' interest at that point to continue to fight. So in the California cases from last spring, for example, when the court in April of 2021 blocked California's restrictions on in-home gatherings on the ground that it interfered with religious liberty. Um, the, you know, the governor of California, Governor Newsom, just dropped those restrictions rather than continuing to litigate them. Um, during the Trump administration, right, we saw a number of orders where the Supreme Court froze lower court injunctions of Trump policies. The policies never got back to the Supreme Court. I mean, with one exception, the only exception being the travel ban, there wasn't a single Trump policy that was put back into effect by a Supreme Court shadow docket order that the Supreme Court ever actually upheld on the merits. And so I think that's where the concern comes from. That's where the the recent practice really does seem to be a departure from the historical norm, which is these are increasingly precedential and increasingly the last word Mm -hmm. that the justices are having in these cases, last words that are often no words at all. Well, I want to read part of what Justice Elena Kagan wrote in a dissenting opinion last fall. Quote, today's ruling illustrates just how far the court's shadow docket decisions may depart from the usual principles of appellate process. She goes on to write, the majority's decision is emblematic of too much of this court's shadow docket decision making, which every day becomes more unreasoned, inconsistent, and impossible to defend. And this was from Justice Elena Kagan's dissent in the shadow docket decision that allowed Texas latest law restricting abortion access to stand while the Supreme Court weighs in on the case. Jeffrey, what does it say to you that there are justices, including Chief Justice Roberts, criticizing the court about the use of the docket? It's a remarkable debate among the justices. You're right to quote from Justice Kagan. In that case, she's been very vocal on this. She also, in her dissenting opinion in Louisiana and Rivers case, said This renders the court's emergency docket not for emergencies at all. In the Marilyn Milligan case, she said this can only happen after full briefing and argument, not based on the scanty review this court gives its matters on the shadow docket. Now, Justice Samuel Alito has pushed back. Um, In a speech, he said there's nothing unusual about the use of the shadow docket. The court's simply answering questions that it's being asked to do on an emergency basis, and also that it's perfectly appropriate to respond to the increasing use of nationwide injunctions by lower court judges so that the Supreme Court can be the last word and ensure national uniformity. So far, um, at least during the Trump years, it seemed like a debate between the conservative justices who didn't like nationwide injunctions and did want to use the shadow docket to reverse them, and the liberal justices like Justice Kagan, who didn't like the shadow docket and were more tolerant of emergency injunctions against President Trump. Now that the shoe is on the other foot, uh, we'll see what the court does, for example, in this CDC case where we have a Trump judge using uh, a a nationwide injunction. And I I think regardless of um, how you come down on the shadow docket question, the mere fact that both of these devices, nationwide injunctions and the shadow docket, have been used with such increasing 
frequency and don't involve full briefing and argument and transparency led the bipartisan Supreme Court uh, panel assembled by President Biden among its few consensus recommendations to suggest more transparency for the shadow docket and also the possibility of not giving shadow docket decisions precedential effect. They said that that would solve a lot of the problem if it clearly addressed the problem that Steve Vladek properly flagged and not make these quickly decided decisions uh, nationwide precedent. So a complicated question, but I hope listeners will get a sense of really how much is at stake for the legitimacy of the courts itself, for citizens' trust in the courts as neutral arbiters, and for the rule of law to be administered in an impartial and transparent way. We asked our tax club to weigh in on the shadow docket, and here's what one of you shared. I think even... I think even shadow docket items should have some kind of explanation for ruling so that law and precedent are clear. While another of you shared, the shadow docket feels like a strong weapon in the march toward authoritarianism. I don't understand how the justices justify it. Steve, how do they justify it? Well, you know, Jeffrey mentioned Justice Alito's speech at Notre Dame Law School last September, um, which was at least in part a response to me. <laughs> he called me out by name. Um, and, and I think what, what's missing about Justice Alito's speech, what was, I think, unsatisfying about Justice Alito's speech, was that it was basically an argument that we're just reacting to the world out there, um, that we're not doing anything unusual, we're not, we haven't changed any of our rules, that you know, there's a lot more of these emergency cases coming our way, and therefore it's inevitable that we're going to be doing more of this. And, and Jen, I think what that misses is how what the court is doing is so different in both degree and kind. I mean, Carolyn mentioned how rare it was when she clerked to have anything other than, you know, last minute execution cases come to the court this way. You know, Justice Alito didn't really engage with the data that show how many more of these are coming to the Supreme Court. He said it's just because they're receiving more applications. Well, just because the denominator is higher doesn't mean that the numerator should be higher. Um, But also, I mean, to Jeffrey's point about nationwide injunctions, I think it's worth stressing how little this phenomenon actually has to do with nationwide injunctions, because that's a common response you hear from Justice Alito from other conservatives, that the court's just reacting to district court judges behaving badly. You know, Jen, if you look at the period just since last January 20th, when President Trump left office, you know, there have been a bunch of nationwide injunctions um, against Biden policies. um, And the Supreme Court has generally not put those on hold, even the same justices who were against nationwide injunctions during the Trump years. The only exception so far is the vaccine mandate that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services imposed on healthcare workers at federal facilities receiving Medicare, or healthcare facilities receiving Medicare and Medicaid funds. And the same justices who were critical of nationwide injunctions dissented in those cases. So, you know, I think the reality, Jen, is that the justices are finding the shadow docket a much more convenient way to resolve high profile contentious disputes without having to commit precedential principles, you know, sort of dozens of pages of analysis, things that they're going to be bound by in the future to paper. And the more that they do it, the more they're going to do it. So, you know, from my perspective, the best defenses of the court's behavior require actually largely misstating what the court's behavior actually has been. So we've mentioned it a couple of times. Justice Samuel Alito defended the court's decisions on the shadow docket in a speech last fall at the University of Notre Dame, and, and he took issue with the term shadow docket. In that speech, Alito said, quote, the catchy and sinister term shadow docket has been used to portray the court as having been captured by a dangerous cabal that resorts to sneaky and improper methods to get its way. 
way, and this portrayal feeds unprecedented efforts to intimidate the court or damage it as an independent institution, end quote. We're discussing the Supreme Court's shadow docket as part of our Remaking America project. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from a member of the 1A Text Club. I don't have very much trust, and I certainly believe that judges have no business ruling on health matters like mask mandates. Carolyn, legally, how is it possible for one judge to make a decision that has such a far-reaching impact? Well, there are a variety of different mechanisms why that, how that, the, that these types of cases come before courts. In this particular case, the, the CDC issued a regulation, essentially, and the judge said, well, this regulation exceeds the authority that the Congress has given to the CDC. And so it was a question of statutory interpretation. Agencies can only act within the powers that Congress gives them, and she said the CDC has exceeded that power. Uh, she also looked at some of the procedural requirements when an agency issues a regulation, including the requirement that it justify what it's doing, uh, and she concluded that this particular justification was so inadequate as to be arbitrary and capricious, which is a term of art that means essentially you know, totally unjustified. Now, I disagree pretty profoundly with her conclusions on both of these points, but I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about the procedures in this case. This is a there's a there's a regulation. The people who don't like the regulation are challenging it. It was not a preliminary injunction. This went through full briefing and summary judgment uh, consideration, and she concluded that the regulation was invalid. And again, I disagree with her conclusion, but courts do that. That's not a shocking outcome all by itself. And frequently, when a court concludes that a regulation is invalid because, for example, it exceeds the agency's statutory power, it's just the court strikes down the entire regulation or set or vacates it or sets it aside. These are different words for essentially the same thing that has the effect of a nationwide injunction. There was a recent shadow docket case about Alabama's redistricting maps where two justices from the majority, Samuel Alito and Brett Kavanaugh, did partially explain their reasoning. Jeffrey, what was that ruling and why was the explanation significant? Well, that was um, the Marilyn Milligan case. And the question was whether there was a basis for revising the voting rights precedent in light of modern districting technology. Uh, and the uh, justices did give a reason that technology might have merited a new notion of the Voting Rights Act. But Justice Kagan, uh, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, were completely unconvinced. They said that such a change can properly happen only after full briefing and argument, not based on the scanty review this court gives on its shadow docket. So it's important to note that even if there's brief explanation, as there is in all these cases, they don't come with full argument with full briefing, which really brings to the fore the very thoughtful comment that you just played from your listener um, about how citizens' faith in the rule of law depends on transparency, prospectivity, and accountability. Citizens have to have a sense that 
full reasons are being given after full consideration in order to have faith that the law is being applied neutrally. Just, just uh, Blackstone, in his definition of what the rule of law is, which both the conservative and the liberal justices often quote, notes that the emperor Caligula used to post laws so high on walls above the city of Rome that citizens couldn't read them and therefore they could never conform their conduct to law. And that's the opposite of the rule of law when you don't have reasons and you, you can't actually know what the law is. It's inter also interesting that um, Justices Alito and Kavanaugh would have granted a stay in the Trump election cases from Pennsylvania. That was another election case where the court decided not to intervene. Uh, and they gave some reasons, but not full ones, um, but they were in dissent in that case. So election cases are a very good example of, obviously there's a, 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 an urgency because the election's about to take place. But in that case, the, the liberals said, hey, the, the election's not taking place until the spring. There's plenty of time to have full briefing and arguments. There's no need to swoop right in and make a quick decision. And therefore, let's not deviate from our ordinary procedures. Well, during an interview at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library earlier this month, Justice Amy Coney Barrett argued that the court's decisions are transparent. We're very transparent with respect to our reasoning, our decisions, our opinions are published, and all of our reasoning is laid bare. And the courtroom is open to the public in, in non-COVID times. We're still closed to the public right now because of the pandemic. Um, so we do want the American people to see our work, um, and we try to show our work. That was Justice Amy Coney Barrett earlier this month. She went on to encourage people to read the court's opinions for themselves. But as we've said, when it comes to the shadow docket, there often aren't opinions to read. And we got this email from Kitty who says, is there any reason that one brave justice couldn't give the public a summary version of the reasoning behind a decision on the shadow docket? Carolyn, your thoughts? They can. We do see uh, justices write separately sometimes. Um, in this Alabama case we were just talking about, Justice Kavanaugh uh, wrote an opinion that Justice Alito joined in which he explained why he voted the way he did. We don't know for sure if it's why all of the other members of the majority voted that way. Uh, but but it is possible for an individual justice to to provide some explanation. What we end up seeing, though, is justices, because these cases are not fully briefed and argued, taking positions that they may later actually turn out to be wrong, but they've now dug into, which will make it hard for them to change their minds. We've seen that with respect to some of these cases involving whether or not state legislatures can be are restrained by their own state constitutions, whether state courts have anything to say about the way state legislatures run federal elections. Uh, the, the, for the last 250 years, the answer has been, yes, of course, state constitutions matter. But in recent elections, we've seen some justices say, well, maybe not. But they don't even say maybe. They say just not. Um, and that's done without full briefing and argument. It's also done without the opportunity for scholars to do the research that's now coming out that shows the longstanding historical record that's to the contrary of what these justices have said. So there's a, there's a sort of a twofold problem with the shadow docket. One is the lack of transparency, um, and the other is the speed and the way in which it encourages the justices to take positions without full 
opportunity to think through the implications. Well, some of our listeners said their lack of trust comes from one justice in particular. One tax club member wrote, I do not trust the Supreme Court since it is so political now, also because of Clarence Thomas and his wife. I do not believe that she doesn't influence his views. I am worried about where this will lead us as a country. Nowhere good, I fear. And another wrote, I trust it very little, but I want to. The partisan nature of nominations have destroyed my belief that they are above politics. A justice whose wife is involved with a coup to overturn the government gives me a great distrust. They are referring to the fact that Justice Clarence Thomas has not recused himself from cases regarding the 2020 presidential election and January 6th insurrection. Recently, it was reported that his wife, Jenny Thomas, supported President Trump's attempts to overturn the results. Jeffrey, how concerning is this from an ethical point of view? Well, I'm not a legal ethicist, and I think I won't weigh in on this particular dispute, except to say that it's not connected to the debate we're having about the shadow docket, um, you know, except um, to the degree that it creates mistrust among citizens of all the justices for not giving full reasons. It's striking, of course, that Justice Thomas is the leading opponent of the sh- of the of nationwide injunctions, as we talked about, it was in the Trump and Hawaii case that he said that he was skeptical that district courts had the authority to issue these injunctions, and that uh, this conflicted with traditional rules of equity as well as the original understanding of the judicial role. And Justice Thomas was saying that the use of of these uh, nationwide injunctions would decrease citizens' faith in the courts because judges were overstepping their duty to just decide disputes between citizens and instead were trying to make policy on grounds that were legally and historically dubious. It's, it's harder to make that case when there are these ethical questions raised, but, but the, I think it's a, uh, just to return to the Biden Supreme Court Commission, which I think is the best thing I can do. The, the commission itself suggested that a voluntary code of ethics for the justices would solve a lot of these problems. It's really striking that alone among judges, Article Three judges, U.S. Supreme Court justices are not bound by a court of ethics. It's entirely up to them to decide on a case-by-case basis whether or not to recuse. And regardless of what you think about Justice Thomas's uh, case in particular, it would certainly help citizens' confidence if the court chose to be bound by ethics rules that apply to all other judges. For our other two branches of government, elections are an accountability mechanism. If the public doesn't like what Congress or the president is doing, they can vote them out. However, the federal judiciary comes with lifetime appointments. So how can federal judges and and justices be held accountable by the American people? Steve, I want to hear from you on this first. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, you know, I think a story that's largely been lost to contemporary eyes and awareness. But, you know, for the first 200 years of our country, um, one of the ways that we held the courts in general and the Supreme Court in particular accountable was that Congress was regularly involved in conversations with the court and conversations in which the court played a central role about the shape of the court's docket about what kinds of cases the justices were hearing, um, even about some of the ethical questions that, you know, Jeffrey was referring to. And one of the things that I think has really fallen off the table in the last 35 years is the notion that that's appropriate, um, is the notion that, you know, the legislature has not just the ability but the responsibility to be engaged in this regular, ongoing, interbranch conversation about how well-served we think we are by the court's docket. Just, Jen, one really quick data point. You know, in 1988, the last time Congress touched the Supreme Court's jurisdiction 
jurisdiction. Just as we're still hearing about 150 merits cases a year, um, that number had fallen into the 80s and 90s once Congress gave them more discretion throughout the 1990s when Carroll and Clerk the 2000s. Jen, that number these days is in the 50s and 60s. Um, and I think part of that's, you know, a symptom of this broader problem, that there's room for Congress to hold the court accountable even without altering the court's composition, by reforming its jurisdiction, by shining a light on what the court is doing. And that's part of the conversation I hope, you know, public attention to the shadow docket will help to stimulate. That's University of Texas Law School professor Steve Vladek. He's currently writing a book about the shadow docket. It's set to come out next year. Also with us today, Chicago Kent Law professor Carolyn Shapiro. She's also the co-director of Chicago Kent's Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States and George Washington Law, George Washington University law professor Jeffrey Rosen. He's also the president of the National Constitution Center. Jeffrey, Carolyn, Steve, thanks for speaking with us. This conversation was part of our Remaking America collaboration with six public radio stations around the country, exploring Americans' trust in institutions and the health of our democracy. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was Amanda Williams. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.